right. Why don't you guys turn to Luke 16, verse 19, please. We're going to use the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. And the message is, what about hell? Many people do not believe in heaven or hell, especially today. While others believe in heaven, but not hell. Um, there are those who believe people simply just annihilate after death, and there's nothing beyond, and that's it. So you might as grab all the gusts you can, and all the brews, and all the chicks, and whatever you have, because it's going to be over soon. Um, and there are many other religious aspects, but basically those are the categories of people. Um, but the most valuable and important authority is the Bible. For God alone knows all things and will one day judge the living and the dead. So if we're going to speak with credible authority about life after death and the consequences thereafter, we should probably pay attention to someone who has died and risen from the dead that limits it to one person, Jesus Christ. Buddha, Muhammad, they're all in their grave. Luke tells us that Jesus spoke various parables on one Sabbath day beginning Luke 14, verse 1, all the way to chapter 16, verse 18, as he headed towards Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. Now, the text that follows that section is the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar. That is the climax of all the preceding material to illustrate who really is a wise investor in the true riches. That's the focus, that's the topic. And this is while people are on earth before they depart into eternity that reveals the true investors. Now, Jesus indirectly answers our question, what about hell, in this passage? By the account of what takes place when a person dies, and he does it in three movements here in Luke 16. Let me read for us. Verse 19 on down. There was a certain rich man who was uh, clothed with purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of source, who was laid at his gate. Designed to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and they licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels of Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, but you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. The interesting thing is that Jesus rose from the dead and people still do not believe. Believing to be saved is a matter of faith. 
believing God's revelation has nothing to do with evidence. And so, let me give you the three movements that we have here that answers our question, what about hell? First, we have the two men in life, verse 19 to 21. Second, we have the two men after death, verse 22 to 26. And thirdly, we have the two regrets in eternity, 27 to 31. The two men in life, 19 to 21. Look at verse 19, the rich man. He is identified by the, his social position. There was a certain rich man. He was one of the few of his days. Not everybody was rich. There's more rich people today than there were in those days. Um, he was um, rich, which means wealthy, real simple. Having an abundance, appearing the most number in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke um, does a contrast between the poor and, and, and the rich and, and women and others, and it's a real interesting study. Um, this man had all that he needed. The man had the ability to buy whatever he wanted. He obviously was a good investor in his generation. Remember the topic behind all of this is who's the true investor, the true riches, okay? Nothing is said about how he gained his wealth. Some rich men had obtained it through corruption and dishonesty, as always. But there are those who do it lawfully and honorably, and they become wealthy. They're good businessmen. Notice he is described by his luxurious dress, who was clothed in purple and fine linen. The rich man uh, here, purple material that died um, from purple fish and um, a species of shellfish. Remember, that was again the, um, in the tabernacle. Um, they used some of those colors too from the sea life. Um, this was the color of the elite. This was the color of royalty. The rich man wore fine linen, it says, made from uh, bisous, a very costly, delicate, soft material. There was white linen. There was yellow linen. This indicated high fashion. He is depicted by his great feast also. He fared sumptuously every day. He delighted himself in a flamboyant way, just, you know, real ostentatious, real showy. The word sumptuously means splendidly and magnificently. The idea is of being over the top when he had a dinner or a feast daily. Real extravagant. The rich man surely ate gourmet food the most exotic of his day, the abundance of various foods. And the rich man probably had many servants present at these great feasts, tending to him as well as his guests, and they were dressed to impress, I'm sure, as they serve on fancy dishes, of that day. Now in contrast, we have the beggar Lazarus in verse 20 and 21. He is also identified by a social position, but there was a certain beggar. The word but marks the sharp contrast. This placed him in sharp contrast to the rich man. This placed him in poverty. Two extremes here that Jesus chooses. The man was one of many beggars, but there was a certain beggar, this one. The word beggar always indicates a person that is destitute of wealth, position, and influence. Nine of the ten times 
It comes from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ when the word is used. Nine out of ten. Jesus was always concerned with the poor. He didn't reject the rich. He just knew that the rich had no time for him or felt they had no need of him. He was one who begged for alms to survive and to live from day to day due to his horrific poverty. But he also is identified by his personal name, Lazarus. That means whom God helps. What a seeming contradiction to his social position. The name comes from the Hebrew word Eliezer. The fact that his personal name is stated does not fit a parable. There are many who call this passage a parable. Jesus never used personal names in parables. This is a true story about two men, a rich man and a beggar. Also, nowhere is it stated that it's a parable. Every time it's a parable, it says Jesus spoke a parable unto them. Nowhere is that word found. So those two things, it's not labeled a parable, and personal names were never used in any parable. Now notice, he, Lazarus, is described by his inability to care for himself, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. His physical condition is indicated by the phrase, full of sores. It means his entire body was covered with ulcerated sores. The condition would cause them to ooze with pus and scabs that would crack and dry up again. This would also cause bad odor and without doubt, very dirty. If you go to Israel with us one of these times, you um, can go around the city of Jerusalem, particularly the Damascus Gate, and you will find people like that begging. They carry them there, they put them there, and then they come back at the end of the day and they pick them up. Now notice his vulnerable state is declared, who was laid at his gate. Someone would carry and place him down at some location to beg, as I just stated that you can see in Israel today and many other countries. You go to Mexico, you see that, other countries. Someone placed him at the gate of this rich man. His clothes were torn and filthy. Notice he's depicted in a dehumanized manner, hoping to be given scraps off the table, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Um, we can take food for granted because we have it, access. We can just go down the store and buy it. We can just open a refrigerator and we have it. Um, a lot of the world doesn't have those luxuries. And um, certainly people that are impoverished, um, some of you that go down to Mexico to the medical outreach just meet some of these people. They just have cardboard shacks where they live. Um, but they're very humble people, very grateful people. The word desiring means to long for whatever might fall to the ground. Or the bread that would be used to clean off the hands. They didn't have napkins. They used the bread. Then they throw the bread to the dogs. Jesus spoke another time of the, the Syrophoenician woman. Yes, but even the little puppies need 
be fed, Lord. <laughs> that same custom. Little puppies would eat it. Having to deal with the roaming dogs was probably a nuisance. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So here he's hungry, he's trying to get the scraps that fall off or get tossed down, and he's combating with these um, street dogs. The word moreover could be translated nevertheless or notwithstanding to indicate the, nu the nuisance and at the same time the dog's licking his sores uh, could have given him some relief. Kind of like a sweet sour. We do not know the circumstances that led to his condition. Jesus is trying to drive the point home of who was the true investor of the true riches while on earth when they leave into eternity. It has been said that no one has ever seen a hurts pulling a U-Haul behind it with all the person's material things. They don't even bury you with your shoes. You take nothing with you. Nothing wrong with things, it's just that things usually bring us more problems and benefits if we don't understand how um, fortunate we are that we have things and we care for them as stewards. Material things um, do not make us Christians, but they can cause us to be carnal and not spiritual. We can lose perspective. Do I possess things or do things possess me? Am I covetous rather than content? If so, then I will never be satisfied. Contentment is an incredible, incredible um, characteristic to have. Contentment doesn't mean you're lazy. Contentment means that you're grateful for what you have and you're a steward of what you have without worshiping it. And if God has something else, fine. But it doesn't make your day. Complacency is you're lazy. You don't care. You don't care to be a steward or to go get ahead. There's a big difference. Am I trusting my money instead of God, however small or large that it might be? If I am, then I am very poor spiritually. Paul the Apostle says, Not that I speak in regards to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be a base and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Very important. You have steak, great. All you have is beans, oh, they're great too. Doesn't matter. Do I take um, others into consideration and give help as the Lord leads me through my life? Do I do it to be seen? Do I do it so people feel indebted to me? Do I do it to impress and influence people? Do I do it out of God's agape love? Love for the brethren or the sister. God alone knows these things. And he rewards us according to the motive of our heart. Not what we do or how we do it. But the heart, the motive, the attitude. Luke 6.38 says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over till uh, will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. Now, that scripture doesn't teach that if you give somebody one dollar, you're going to get ten back. <laughs> it says that you cannot outgive God 
It has nothing to do with money. But being a steward alone, you will be financially ahead automatically if you hold material things in the right priority and value because you don't live for them. The two men in life live them on opposite economic levels on the earth. Notice, then comes the two men after death. So that's on, that's on earth, okay? 22 to 26, we get the two men after death. In 22, the time came for the beggar Lazarus to die. Lazarus took his last breath, and so it was that the beggar died. Now, we're not told if he died of complications from the ulcers. We are left to our own imagination, um, but most likely he probably died alone. When he died, he probably was cast into the Valley of Hinnom, the trash site of the city there in Jerusalem, down by the city of Ophel. Some of you have gone down to the, um, the two tunnels, Hezekiah's tunnel, the wet tunnel, and then the dry tunnel. That's down there. Um, the fires were never quenched there. Jesus used the Valley of Hinnom to illustrate hell. Um, and not really hell as we're talking about it, and we'll clear this up as we move along, but the ultimate place, the abode, which is the lake of fire, uh, where it's utter darkness, the fire's never quenched, the worm never dies. Um, there's uh, a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pretty vivid description. Um, there's so many seeming contradictions. How can there be utter darkness and there be fire that never quenched? Um, how can there be such torment and never death? And unless you're willing to accuse Jesus of being um, a liar or that he was um, mix, mixing truth with fiction, then we have to take it for what it is, a literal description of the eternal place. Now, Lazarus was instantly ushered to Hades, notice, he was carried by the angels of Abraham's bosom. Now, I use the word Hades. We're going to get introduced as we go along. I'll show you right now. The bosom of Abraham is identified as synonymous with Hades. You find Hades in verse 23. Okay? So it's talking about the same place. The agents used were angels that are ministering spirits to the earth of salvation. The bosom of Abraham has the idea of reclining back when dining in an atmosphere of peace and comfort. Hebrews 1.14 speaks about the angels being ministering spirits. Abraham is the father of faith and Lazarus is identified as a man of faith. Abraham is pictured and stated to be comforting Lazarus after death, verse 25 tells us. We'll get to that. The bosom. A mother or father grabs her child and just squeezes them into their bosom affectionately, protecting. Notice the time came then for the rich man to die also, the end of 22 and 23. The rich man also took his last breath. The rich man also died and was buried. He probably had the best of physicians of the day to care and comfort him. We're not told either of what he died. He probably did not die alone, but most likely he died with his family, and by his side, as well as maybe some friends. He had a funeral and was buried, notice. Without doubt, very elaborate and luxurious one according to his manner of lifestyle. If he just overdid it in his feast, how much more at his funeral? 
Notice the rich man was also instantly present in Hades, but under different conditions from Lazarus. Verse 23 says, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. He found himself in torments, which means acute pain and discomfort. The rich man went from a life of luxury and comfort to find himself in awful suffering. The rich man never would have imagined himself in such a situation when he was on earth. He was not ushered by the angel's notice, but just found himself in Hades. There's a distinction between those of faith and those that die without faith. The word Hades in the Greek is used for the location and place of departed spirits of men and women. It appears 11 times in the New Testament. Hades in the Greek of the New Testament, Sheol is the Hebrew of the Old Testament. They're synonymous, the place of departed spirits. They're the same place. Notice he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham and Lazarus at a distance and Lazarus in his bosom. Notice he could see. Notice he had consciousness. Notice he saw Lazarus who was in constant pain and suffering and life on the earth, but now being comforted. In all the senses. The time came for the rich man to be gripped with his eternal reality by Abraham, 24 through 26. In 24, the rich man called on Abraham to relieve his pain. Notice he knew who Abraham was, but he had not believed in the promise of Abraham. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham. Turn on the TV. I might be able to name the actor. Doesn't mean I know him. Not at all. He did for the first time what he never did in his entire life on earth. He begged and pleaded for help, have mercy on me. He still thought he could give orders and that Lazarus was his inferior still. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am tormented in these flames. Notice the agony is literal, not symbolic. It is at this point that Jesus informs us that the Sheol or Hades was a twofold compartment for those who died prior to his own death and resurrection. Those who died in faith went to the bosom of Abraham, and those who died apart from faith went to the place of torment. Some interpret the division to be the place of comfort above and the place of torment beneath due to the fact that he lifted up his eyes, but it's just an opinion. There's nothing in the text. Spiritualizing, taking things that you ascribe subjective meanings when nothing is there. Now notice in 25, Abraham asked the rich man to reflect on his life on earth in contrast to Lazarus. He asked him to consider how different their lives were. 
But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things? The rich man delighted in the good, agathos things. The word indicates in nature or useful, salutary or pleasant. He was not in torment because he was a rich man, but he was not concerned with the things of God. That's why he was there. Not because he was rich, but because he was not concerned with the things of God while on earth. Lazarus delighted himself in the things of God, even though he received evil, the word kakos, evil things indicating in nature and troublesome, injurious, and suffering. Notice he informed the rich man that he and Lazarus were reaping to their belief and trust in God when they were on earth. He says, but now he is comforted and you tormented. Wow. The rich man considered himself a wise investor in his earthly future. While he was doing business and looking forward to more. The rich man never considered God or the future in eternity. Lazarus considered God and eternity. Notice Abraham revealed to the rich man there was a separation between those who died in faith and those who died without or apart from faith. Verse 26. He informed the rich man that the two compartments were uncrossable. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. The word gulf fixed is a gaping opening or literally chasm. That's where you get the word. He informed the rich man their state was eternal and were prohibited from going from one location to the other when he told them so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. During his life on earth, the only things that separated him from Lazarus was the gate of his house. And he never crossed over it to relieve his pain and suffering. This is the actual location and condition for all who die before Jesus dies and rose from the dead. They went to one place or the other. This is God's revelation through Jesus Christ, who is God, indirectly about eternity before his death and resurrection, two compartments. You remember the rich fool who thought he would build bigger barns and live his life in ease and eat and drink and be merry. And then he was told by God, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Luke 12, 20, and 21. Nothing wrong with making investments. Nothing wrong with being a steward. Nothing wrong with uh, putting things away for retirement or a rainy day, but not at the exclusion of God. Then your God becomes your money. There was a Texan one time. He was very wealthy and he had in his will how he wanted to be buried. And, and they were all waiting there at the funeral. And uh, they go out and they had the service. And then they go out to the um, graveyard, gravesite. And um, all of a sudden, they, uh, they see a huge uh, crane coming in. 
and there was this beautiful red convertible Cadillac, and he was strapped into the driver's seat. And they had this huge hole, and he was going to be buried in his Cadillac. Some of the guys that were working there said, man, that's living. No, I don't think so. You're not going to be able to drive that around hell. People have some tweaked ideas of what happens after you die. We make jokes about it before I was a Christian. You, you know, you'd make jokes and everything else because you're ignorant. You don't know. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he told one of the thieves on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise in Luke 23, 43. Jesus was speaking about the part of Sheol or Hades called the bosom of Abraham, the place of comfort, also paradise. So as we look at all this, the place of comfort called the bosom of Abraham is also paradise. It's called paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus did not mention the place of torment, but we know it's there. Then when Jesus died, he descended down to Hades or Sheol, and he preached to those who died in faith in fulfillment of the victory over sin and death. Peter, quoting Psalms at Pentecost, said, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One, Jesus, to see corruption. Acts 2.27. He's quoting Psalm 16.10 prophetically. Peter says Jesus preached to those who died in faith, and then he emptied that compartment of those who died in faith. And he took them to heaven as he ascended. 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20 says, By whom also he, Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved, through water, meaning they got in the boat. Paul confirms this in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, when he says, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high to heaven, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this is he that ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So he descended to preach to those who were in prison. He took them to heaven as he ascended up on high. Again, Paul affirms the victorious event in Hades by describing it in Colossians 2.15. Listen. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle or display of them triumphing over them. In other words, no demon, not even Satan, could stop him because he destroyed him who has the power of death, and he destroyed death for the believer. Paul tells us that Jesus transferred then paradise to the third heaven where God dwells. We are told by Paul when he was caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12.4. I knew a man in Christ about 13 years ago, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. He was, and there I heard things were not lawful to be uttered. He was caught up to the third heaven. And then he says, Paradise. So the third heaven and paradise are synonymous when Paul is speaking in 2 Corinthians 12. So we see that he transferred paradise prior to his death and resurrection, which was the bosom of Abraham, the place of comfort, now to the third heaven where God dwells. So that the instant a Christian dies now, 
He or she is immediately present before the Lord. They are never found naked, but they are not in their glorified body, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8 tells us. The minute you give up your last breath, if you're a believer, you're instantly present with the Lord in the third heaven paradise. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're instantly present now in that one compartment. There's no longer two, Hades or Sheol, what we commonly call hell. In fact, the believer receives this glorified body at the rapture. Many people believe that they're instantly present in heaven in their glorified body. No. Listen carefully. 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Listen carefully. Then we who are alive, he's talking to the church, the Christian, re, um, alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazzled, it's the rapture, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Who is them? We're caught up with them. Them, the cadavers, the stiffs. <laughs> And we are glorified, transformed as we're going up, and they receive their glorified body then. It all happens at the same time. The important thing that Paul tells them in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-8 Corinthians is that we're never found naked. People say, what are we in? I don't know, but we're not naked. But we're not in our glorified body either. Okay? Very important. So Hades and Sheol is now one compartment, as I said, where unsaved people go when they die, eternally separated from God until the white throne judgment to give an account of their sins and sentenced to be cast into the ultimate place, the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15 tells us that. There is no second opportunity to repent or be saved after death. Anybody who tells you that's a liar. Get away from them. Hebrews 9.27 says, And it is appointed for men to die once, and after that, the judgment. Listen to Revelation 20.11-13. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, for whose face the earth had, and heaven had fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. We saw that last time. And the dead were judged according to their works. By the things which were written in the book, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged each according to his works. This is the white throne judgment for all unbelievers at the end of the thousand year reign. Then death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, Revelation 20 verse 14. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 15. Very, very clear. The two men after death receive opposite spiritual investments, returns in Hades. Now, the last movement is the two regrets in eternity. 27 to 31. 27 and 28, the rich man regretted the thought of his five brothers ending up in the same place of torment. Notice that. His petition was respectful to Abraham. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. The word beg means to beseech or entreat. The time to humble oneself was too late. His concern was his brothers living on earth. I have five brethren. That he may testify to them, meaning Lazarus, lest they also come to this place of torment. Notice he, he's, he's certain they're going to come there. Okay? The word testify simply means to personally speak to them about life after death. That's what it's referring to. The purpose was to warn them lest they end up in the same place, the place of torment. Now think 
think about this. Is Jesus just trying to scare people? Is Jesus just trying to, you know, uh, do an unjust thing to people's emotions? Or is he telling the truth? Look at 29 through 31. The rich man respectfully heard his position or his petition denied by Abraham. In verse 29, the response of Abraham was that they were without excuse. Listen carefully. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, ooh, it's not very nice. Hell isn't a nice place. This is after death. There is no redoing, undoing. God had given the sufficient revelation for sinners to know they needed to repent and be saved. Their need was to hear them, a cool to attend, consider, and respond to the writings of Moses on how to live and to obey the prophet's message of repentance. The rich man did not believe the scriptures were sufficient. Watch. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He was still rebellious against God. He was saying God is not fair. Even there. Wow. He believed he knew better. Saying, if someone who has died goes to them, they would repent. You've read the book of Revelation, right? When the men on the earth in those seven years know that the wrath of God is being poured out from the throne of heaven. Do they repent? No. They curse God and they ask the mountains and rocks to fall upon them. Hmm. He knew his five brothers would not pay heed to the scriptures and end up just like him. That's horrible for him to know that. Notice the words of Abraham assured him his brothers would not believe Lazarus. Verse 31. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. The word persuaded means to induce one by words to believe. The evidence had been verified when Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, was raised from the dead by Jesus. But rather than believing, the chief priest tried to put Lazarus to death in John 12, 10. Hmm. You guys remember the rich young ruler? He walked away sorrowful as Jesus told him to sell all that he had and to distribute it to the poor and he would have treasures in heaven but became very sorrowful because he was very rich. Luke 18, 22 through 24 says. Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Those who have riches as their God, who place their riches before God, who trust their money and not God. Jesus didn't say there won't be any rich men in heaven. He said how hard it is. So really, it's, it's the exception that rich people come to Christ, not the rule. John Wesley said, Get all you can, speaking about money. Save all you can and give all you can. Good advice. You know, the time for us to be concerned about unsaved loved ones and friends is while we're still alive. Praying for them, those that are lost, telling them about the Lord Jesus, his love and his desire to forgive them of their sins. Letting our lives confirm the message that we proclaim. Being involved financially in reaching the laws and missions, whatever. Being part of the church. 
but also knowing that we can't convince anybody, so we may share as God opens the doors, and we pray for them constantly, but there comes some times when they say, you know, I don't want to hear that anymore. And you know what? I won't tell you anymore. I'm not going to force myself upon you. I'll continue to pray for you, but I will respect your wishes. Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Every day of your life, God wants to use you. Your light, your salt. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder, Luke 20, 18. It's a choice. You fall on the rock or the rock falls on you. God doesn't choose that. Each person chooses that. The sufficiency of the scriptures for salvation of man is without question. The invitation is clear in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes him should not perish but have everlasting life. If that's the only verse that we had of the Bible, we wouldn't need any other. None at all. That would be all we need. The explanation of the transaction is equally clear in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Wow. Who got the best deal? <laughs> love. The love of God. Now, God couldn't save us through his love. He had to save us through the death of his son. His motive was love, but the transaction was death of an innocent man. The limitation is amazingly clear. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. In that one statement, that one verse, Jesus just destroyed every philosophy, every ism, every religion, anything that says you can get to heaven through any other person. Pretty narrow. What's at stake is eternity. And heaven or hell. Jesus is the only name given whereby men must be saved. Hebrews 4.12. The only way, the only name, and Jesus is the only meter between God and man, the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5. So the only way, the only name, the only mediator. Very, very narrow, but very, very, very clear. And it is a choice whether I believe that and act on it, or whether I reject it. The wisest thing to do is to invest in God and spiritual things, not those of the world. Now, we live in the world. You have to work, you have to save, you have to buy, you have to sell, you have to do different things, but you're not living for those things. There are many outside the church and within the church that are like the rich man lost, and will be eternally lost when they die. First Timothy 6, 9 through 10 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptations and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men's in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith, believers, in their greediness, and pierce themselves through with many sorrow. The love of money, not money itself. I can give you a pen and you can write poetry or you can write dirty words. It's just an instrument. You're the one that's making it do it. People always say guns kill people. Yeah, well, you know, a student said, well, you know, teacher, it's my pencil who made me make the mistakes. Pretty good, huh? <laughs> the logic of the day, politically correctness, it doesn't work with God. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves 
a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. There are others who have it very hard in this life, and they are spiritual giants before us and before God, investing in spiritual things. First uh, Samuel 15, 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the outward appearance or the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The kingdom principle is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you, Matthew 6, 33. All these things that the Gentiles live for, the car, the dress, the move, the food, this, that, as a priority. He says those things are, are, are coming the back. The priority is the kingdom of God. Being fruitful, abiding in Christ, John 15, 1 through 8. Abiding, not departing. Abiding. Jesus, in the parable of the nobleman that went into a far country and said he would return, he says, So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. That's you and me. It wouldn't be good investors in the kingdom of God. The minute I got saved, I just shut everything off completely. My life changed. I wasn't living for the weekends anymore. We were taking people to concerts and Christian concerts and Bible studies and everything else. I, I didn't even follow sports anymore. And I, you know, I, I, I was involved in everything. And yet I'm in contact with the world. But they're not the priorities. Not nothing wrong in and of themselves. But they're not the priorities. The two regrets in eternity were opposite of God's provisions for sinners on earth. This is a picture of what about hell? Real truth. The mouth of Jesus, not fabricated, not exaggerated, not fictional, but literal. And so, the account takes place through these three movements that gives us indirectly all the truth we need about what about hell. The two men in life live on opposite economic levels on earth. The two men after death received opposite spiritual investment returns in Hades. And the two regrets in eternity were opposite of God's provisions for sinners on earth. He threw it away. God never wanted him to go to hell. He chose to go to hell. Two thieves on the cross. One chose to go to paradise, the other one to Hades. It's a choice, ladies and gentlemen. God has never sent one person to hell. Every person that ends up in hell has sent themselves there by rejecting Jesus Christ while they're living. You die the way you live usually. I think deathbed conversions are way exceptions. I don't believe that the rule. They're the exceptions. You usually die the way you live. I pray that you are living for Christ so when you die, you're instantly present. Lord, we worship you. We thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for tonight. And Lord, we pray that as your word goes forth, you will speak to those who are listening, Lord, out there in the world somewhere, over the internet and here. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, um, you can call on his name. He is God who became man. He died for your sins and he rose from the dead and he's able to forgive you of your sins and to assure you that when you give your last breath in this life, you will be instantly present before him. You have his word and he cannot lie. And so he always requires that confession of him and the acknowledgement of your sin. It's called repentance. 
If this is your desire, this is a simple prayer repentance right now. He's going to save you right where you're at. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.